Welcome back to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Trey Surish. Trey, it has been a minute. Yes. Been just a second. Welcome back. Thank you. Exciting. We were just talking before we hit record. Feels nice to be able to sit down and chat again and Mm -hmm. jump back into some of our our healthcare topics. It has been, oh gosh, eight, eight weeks, maybe two months, a little longer than we had originally intended, but... We had some much-needed time away. You've you've had some not life transitions really, but work uh, always stuff with work for you to do and mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. in your household is transitioning and a lot of exciting life events. We're planning your bachelor party right now, so we've got plenty <laughs> yes. of cool stuff keeping us <laughs> keeping us busy. Mm-hmm, um, yes. But yeah, but it's good to be back. And probably the only thing I would say is we we didn't make quite as much progress on our heart failure class as we were hoping to in the. Uh, in the interim break, but that's okay. It's nice to come back to it and feel like we've got uh, we've got some pep and some fuel in the tank for uh, for this next season. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And something you and I talked about as we think about the next twelve weeks and each season kind of having a different flavor. Last season was the what's wrong with healthcare? How should healthcare be better for patients? And this season we're taking a bit of a, a bit of a flip on it, right? A little what's right with healthcare? What are the things that we are optimistic about? doing more interviews more regularly, doing some reactions and reflections to some of the news of the day and, and just mm-hmm. trying some different stuff out as you and I continue to try to do this as, as, as our gift to the world in a, in a way to try to share our perspectives and our knowledge and doing something that you and I just enjoy doing. Yeah, I love it. I'm excited to be back. So first and foremost, obviously the the most um, pressing, or not pressing, but the most prescient topic that I think everyone can relate to is it kind of feels like we've um, passed some sort of invisible or maybe not so invisible threshold with COVID a little bit. I certainly feel like it's kind of a toss up when I go into any restaurant, what the mask situation is is going to be slowly starting to see people return uh, to work. I'm curious from your perspective as a, as a physician, how much of an impact are you seeing day to day with, with COVID and COVID related mm-hmm. things in the hospital nowadays? Sure. Sure. Keeping things brief because I'm sure everybody's COVID it out, but I mean, there, they are I think your example of like passing an invisible threshold is very apt. It's different for everybody. I think that's where that tension is coming from, which is like how some people feel more normal than others. The hospital, I mean, it's nine day. I mean, the difference between what it was like just a few months ago and what it's like now is just, it's, it's irrelevant. I mean, largely irrelevant. We have single digit numbers of patients who are hospitalized and they're usually hospitalized with with SARS-CoV-2, but they don't necessarily have COVID-19, which is the like actual illness associated with the virus. They just happen to be sick and have it, which is great. That speaks to effective vaccination efforts. That also speaks to probably the large number of people in the uh, larger state of Texas that likely suffered either asymptomatic infection or symptomatic infection over the past year. So overall, just night and day different but i do notice and i'm curious to hear you talk about it which is again everybody's sort of coming to what they feel like is more normal at a different pace and i think that's what's somewhat fascinating is no one tells you that like okay we're like done now like cdc might release new guidelines about mask wearing your governor might opt to enforce various rules differently from state to state 
but no one gets on and says like, okay, well, like pandemic's done. Like, so just go back to go back to what you were doing before. That just doesn't exist. And I think that's what's really messing with people. I think that's kind of fascinating from a historical perspective, which is, I feel like massive events in history. There isn't, there isn't somebody who just says like, okay, well, like it's now different or okay, now it's back to the same. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. There's, yeah, there's so much to unpack in the midst of this. And, and my hot take, my only hot take on it, I think, is I think that societally, we're all dealing with a level of like societal trauma. I'd be interested to read any mm-hmm. good articles about like societal level trauma. Think about mm-hmm. Japan after they had two nuclear mm-hmm. weapons dropped on them at the end of World mm-hmm. War Two. You just imagine these like cataclysmic events that just mm-hmm. drastically change a culture and they're invisible. And in some ways they're subtle, even after like the immediate impact is felt. And I feel a little bit of that with with COVID in terms of just stress, just stress mm-hmm. and, and how people are reacting to those different things. I see it even with, within myself in the past mm-hmm. 12 months as a as a direct relation with with COVID. That, that's part of the, one of the things that inspired me to reach out to you to, to start this venture together. That's the thing that pushed me to to pursue entrepreneurship and to leave my last job like there, there's a bit of an element of like effort like just effort we're gonna mm-hmm. like do something drastic something different life's too short and i just see that all over the place you, mm-hmm. i think that's a part of the the labor shortages that we're seeing around the country so it's um i think healthcare too uh, healthcare there's this extra acute nature to it because of, of I think, the, the trauma that healthcare workers specifically felt. I'm, I'm sure that's something that you and your fiance, uh, who's also a physician, are, are going to experience indirectly or, or directly. And I think that, that in healthcare largely, that'll be something that we're, we're dealing with is from frontline workers is just the, the fallout of, it's been 12 months, not, over 12 months nonstop mm-hmm. for a lot of healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And then to some extent, you almost want there to be a like like a recess or a like a like a timeout to just to yeah. to recognize and recover cuz certainly the the banners and the the in Dallas Mark Cuban buying lunch for frontline workers mm-hmm. or or whatever we had that's all wonderful and mm-hmm. now we're on the tail end of it and it feels like it's kind of ending with a whimper not a bang yeah i mean and it's i don't know what it speaks to it could speak to exhaustion overall from it i mean like you described there's this just the stress in the air it's hard to imagine i mean we've lived through 9 11 within our lifetimes and that's really the only other thing that i can somewhat equate to a societal stress of great magnitude it was very different that was an event a very like specific event and there's a huge fallout and society still reeling from those changes but this just it feels feels different i mean i guess we're in a different place in our lives certainly professionally we were students at the time and yeah that palpable anxiety of palpable stress and i think that influences also coupled with how contentious the pandemic was in terms of masking policies and social distancing and now vaccination whatever your politics are i think anyone can recognize there was a lot of conflict there so i think combining those two things an inherently anxiety provoking things such as a pandemic with the contentiousness of like all the things surrounding it everybody's done i think just everybody's just like oh man and so the thought of a ticker tape parade through you know, downtown to celebrate all the people who took care of all these folks. I just don't think, I don't think people want that. I don't think they can imagine it. Mm, that's, um, that's well, said. So, well, I don't know if it's right or not. I mean, I, I, know, I know you're not asking me, but I, when I reflect on it, 
I think myself last even this past January, but or last April or in November, whenever we're having all these spikes and just being buried in it. I mean, I think I yeah, I would have appreciated a ticker tape parade. But I think at this point, I think the the benefit is just getting that vaccine, seeing those numbers go down and not having to worry about it. Getting mm. to see friends and family again. That's mm. celebration enough on a small scale anyways. That's great. That's really great. Well, I'm curious. I've got a list of things that I see from um, my vantage point of the world. What are some of the changes or shifts that you feel like you're seeing? There's pre-COVID from, you know, X perspective, and now we're post-COVID, and it, you feel like, you know, I just don't feel like we're ever going to go back to the way things were. Some things snap back. Mm-hmm. Other things snapped and will <laughs> not. There's no, the, the elasticity is gone. Anything that stands out to you? You thinking just overall or within healthcare? Within healthcare. From your perspective as a physician, like anything that you're seeing or that you're thinking about since since COVID was this grand experiment for so many different things. Sure. I think, I I don't know. I think my study of history, because it is one of my passions, is that I think that it takes certain sustained stresses to really create a lot of change. And I don't think COVID-19 was one of those stressors. Thankfully, I don't think enough people died to make it that. We're not talking about like the Black Plague or anything, which fractured an entire way of being for only a certain amount of time. People are like, are very elastic, like you're saying. Now, the changes I have seen that I feel like will stay for some time is masking policy in healthcare situations in the United States. I think that certainly before it was understood that if you were, I mean, again, if you're sick as a physician, you're told don't work, but you do work because there's no one else to do the work. So, but you were, it was also under the impression that you would wear a mask during the time. That never happened before. I don't think I ever saw anybody ever do that. And that just is good infectious technique, but it just wasn't the thing. You'd look strange. It's so funny how that works. And I think now that, I mean, it just would, I think, go without thinking. It's just like, oh, I'm sick. I'm going to wear a mask. And I don't think anyone would think strangely of you if we even go back to, I mean, we will. They're already moving closer to not having mask mandates at the hospital but i think it'll take some time to break yeah i think that's that's a good that's a good perspective i think for me and, and you mm-hmm. and i you and i didn't talk about anything specifically with the what's right in healthcare but my what's right in health for this week when i was thinking about us doing this episode is a little bit of what i think is right with our society and with americans in mm-hmm. general like something we can uh, be proud of is that we're not a very precious nation with regards to like norms and rules we're very innovative mm-hmm. and i believe that's well earned uh, through the centuries that we've been around as a nation and i think mm-hmm. healthcare uh, is an extension of that healthcare is often hampered by the fact that like the nature of healthcare is there there's no move fast and break things with healthcare mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the things that you are breaking happen to be people but i think that covid gave you as much of move fast and break things as you were ever going to get and the innovation that i see and that you and i've talked a lot about is is the move to virtual mm-hmm. virtual and remote type tools and options i think are i think that's something that will never go back i think there will be a a level of comfort with using zoom and teams and mm-hmm. the virtual meetings like it the orientation we all needed to doing things virtual we all got for 18 yeah. months in yeah. a way that will never i think feel weird again mm-hmm. everyone will be able to drop into a virtual meeting before covid you know, I managed a group of clinics that were all physically located in a in a you know, one zip code, and I would physically drive between the clinics. And the managers that I, I supervised would physically drive between the clinics. And I just don't think that's ever going to go back uh, to the way it was. 
And by extension, I'm really excited, and my what right, what's right in healthcare is thinking about how we're going to be able to better serve patients, especially patients in rural areas. One of the physicians that I'm very close with, um, his father just passed away, dementia, lived a long, full life, and was able to pass at home. And he described the experience that, that his father was able to have passing at home with the support resources he had available to him at home, which has me thinking a lot about hospital at home and a specific application of hospital at home mm -hmm. being man, the ability to pass peacefully at home. And mm -hmm. especially when I don't need a bunch of aggressive interventions. So why, why do I need to be in a hospital? We're, we're probably not going to call the ambulance. I just want to be comfortable and have access mm -hmm. to a physician and virtual rounds or whatever I need. I'm really bullish and excited to see what we're able to do specifically around advocating for patients with technology, virtual tools. I think I think the compensation tools or uh, rules around telemedicine, I think they're, they're I'm not sure they're gonna go back. I'll be curious to see, we're gonna find out in the next six months mm -hmm. what a lot of the private payers decide to, to do and what Medicare decides to do, but there's a lot of big financially vested interests betting mm -hmm. and advocating for mm -hmm. the rules not going back to the way they were. Yeah, yeah. Well said, well said. Anything else that, so to give you a, a sort of catch off guard and then I gave my response, anything else that pops to mind before we, uh, we transition? No, no, just again, entering that exhalation phase. I mean, there's not much of an ex because of just always things to do. That's what I think I'm coming to find when I'm reflecting on the end of the pandemic, which was just doing all my work plus the pandemic work and then reverting right back to all the work again. Not, not That sounds more of like a complaint, but what I mean to say is, is that I think that you watch a movie, the credits roll, and you can kind of sit there and think through what you just did. And and in life, if that just doesn't exist, your um, life is just going and your things are happening. And you need to take that time for yourself. You need to, which is why I like that we're talking about it right now, because yeah, if you don't reflect on it, you'll just not process those things mm. that happen to you. And I think that's very insightful when I think about patient care too, the more that I think about it, which is that things happen to patients, you get a diagnosis, a change, an injury, or something like that, something as significant as a hospitalization. And, but your life continues, not only while you're dealing with those things, but then also like when you leave. And it's very important, I think, for patients to like sit and think about, well, this is a big change. Almost like you need like an exit interview when you're leaving. It's like, well, now you're exiting your life as it was before and you're entering a new life. I imagine that's the way with children, grandchildren, divorce, marriage, moving to a different country or even a different state, changing jobs, etc. These major tentpole life change kind of things. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. That's the thing that I'm reflecting on now is that importance of like exhalation and thinking about okay, well, how am I processing this? And that's what I'm trying to do, I think, now that we're talking about it, about the pandemic, thinking about that as we transition out of it. That's great. That's really great. Well, the other thing that you and I committed to, Trey, was mm -hmm. doing some reflections on, on recent news, things that uh, catch our eye and that are worth exploring. The headline of this article, uh, United Healthcare Faces Intense Backlash for New ER Visit Policy. United Healthcare delayed the start date for a new policy it announced this week regarding the company's intention to reject claims for non-emergency visits to the emergency room. The quote here is, 
Based on feedback from our provider partners and discussions with medical societies, we have decided to delay the implementation of our emergency department policy until at least the end of the national public health emergency period, a spokesperson uh, told the outlet here, Yahoo Finance. And the, the extra bit of uh, context that's uh, worthwhile for the story is that this fairly major policy change, which was supposed to go live on July 1st, was announced on like a provider update in a, in a sort of a buried part of United Healthcare's website. And one of my reflections was this is just this whole thing was so bizarre because obviously a, a huge um, source of care for every American, you throw a rock and you'll hit somebody that's been to an emergency room in the past 24, 36 months uh, with a kid for themselves because it's just, uh, it's what you, you need. It's what you need. And the notion of changing how compensation works uh, in the emergency room, which has the potential of impacting every every American, certainly the threat of needing to go to an ER and thinking about compensation, and then not announcing it with any broad PR push, with any bout of education, with any priming the pump, as it were, sort of speaking of whimpers, as I, I mentioned earlier, just putting something on a provider update that says, as of July 1, you're the 250 or $350 that most people pay, or, or I shouldn't say most people, that you might pay as part of an ER copay may go to $2,000 or $3,000 if we deem that the, the labs they drew and the CT scan they needed and whatever else they're doing in the ER didn't meet our standard for, uh, for emergent versus non-emergent. Uh, I cannot make head or tails of this story. I can. I mean, I, I'm actually shocked that you say that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't play so coy. I think that this is perfectly emblematic of one of the core problems that befalls the American healthcare system, which is the people who are receiving the services are not paying for those services. They're not. You may pay a copay. You might pay your deductible. You're not paying for the services. You don't even. You don't even know how much you're paying, but you're not paying for your services. You're paying the luxury of your insurance company if you're so blessed in this country to have access to uh, insurance and good insurance at that. You're paying for that luxury for them to take that and pay for it, which is unusual, right? Like you go to the dealership for a car and you're like, I'm going to, you might go to a bank and take out a loan to buy for that car and then to pay that loan back, right? But it's still like in your name. That money is coming from somewhere. You can track that money. You know exactly what it costs. And, and so on. This is its books could be written about this problem, but it comes down to insurance companies don't want to pay for non-emergent care at emergent facilities. And I completely agree that it is a, is a botched handling, no communication, but it doesn't surprise me because you know, like I feel, I'm not speaking from knowledge, I'm speaking from inexperience, which is the least form of evidence, but I feel that our insurance companies don't really care what the patient did, because again, they're not paying. It's like, we're paying. It's like when you were a kid and you're like, but I want to go to Disney World. Why are we going to Disneyland? Your dad's like, I don't want, like, I'm taking you where we're, where we're going. <laughs> we're going to the zoo because that's where we're saying I'm going. It's like, because that's where we're affording. And when you make some money, we can talk. And that's kind of how I see it about this, which is the unfortunate thing is that you're not kid. It's a population of people who are scared and um, want help and don't have access to that help necessarily. And so that's what I think of when something like this happens, which is there's no way that the insurance company, United or otherwise, looks at those bills that are they're being charged from 
the emergency department and they're like, did you really need to get a CT scan? Did you really need to get a CT scan for bronchitis and so on? And I have thoughts about that as we'll talk about, but it just, just doesn't surprise me if that makes sense. I'm not demeaning it, but I just, it doesn't oh, surprise me. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense, right? It's, it's in some ways that there's a version of this where like everyone agrees, right? You, you shouldn't preventative care, avoidable, you know, non-emergent care in the emergency room. Like everyone's like, yes, that's it, even from a selfish standpoint, right? Like who wants to spend $250 for services that might cost 80 if you went to a minute click, a minute right. clinic? Not that many people are going to go out of their way for those services, right? So to that end, everyone goes, yes, we agree. And then and then someone takes the next step. It's like, so we need to never pay for emergencies. <laughs> like, oh, well, you lost me. Like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> you lost me here. Particularly when, again, I'm going to ping pong between who I'm defending and who I'm sort of antagonizing, but to defend sort of the, the the patient side of it, which is they don't know. You don't know what's emergent and non-emergent. It's similar to like, you don't know when your car just needs an oil change or the transmission's completely failed. Like other, unless the car like is not moving. Like if, if people get that sense, right? Like, and, and again, sticking with that analogy, like if you're having a major heart attack and you get brought to the hospital and you have life-saving procedures, like that's obviously, that's the perfect scenario for when emergent care should be paid for because it was an emergency. But there are few circumstances that are like that compared to the utilization patterns of most American patients. Absolutely, there, there are so many layers to this. And mm -hmm. I was talking to my, my wife and my brother-in-law at dinner tonight about, about us talking about the story. Mm -hmm. And my brother-in-law asked a great question, which was in a very simple term, because obviously there's a it's easy to say like, it's hard to know what's emergent and what's non-emergent. But even my brother-in-law asked a simple question, which is, does the provider even know what the technical definition of emergent versus non-emergent yes. is? And what is, like, what is it? Yeah, teach me, because it's something like I get broadly, but like even as a healthcare professional that understands billing, I'm like, are there two types of codes? Because it's, it's all... Oh, oh, well, I guess I can't speak to... There, yes, there's a definition. No, no. In terms of my mind, I'm not an insurance uh, appraisal person. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to throw it out. Give me your definition. It, it, the coding but is a separate... In the sense that I would teach it to be emergent, it, the difference between emergency, urgency, and just standard, stable, whatever, chronic disease, whatever you want to define it as, in terms of acute disease, is time, tell, event. So... What does that mean is like, okay, well, are you on the order of seconds to minutes before you, if you don't intervene on this, like if you have a piece of steak stuck in your throat, you have seconds to minutes before you die, right? Because you can't breathe. That's an emergency. Everybody gets that. But it's all different. If you have a stroke because a clot went to your head, you have hours before you could have a, a medicine given to potentially bust that clot up and stop permanent brain damage from settling in. So that's an emergency because we're in like hours, but say you're talking about something like a pneumonia, all right, an infection of the lungs where it could get to your blood. It could cause imminent death, but depending on where you are in the disease process, we're talking hours, days, maybe weeks, depending on how healthy you are until you get to that point. So it's urgent that we get you treatment Right. So time to event, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. If you have until you have to like make a choice and so on. And so if there isn't an urgency 
or an emergency to be like, I need to make this decision or else irreversible damage or the decision will be made for me, right? Like I won't get a choice in it. The patient's dead. Like, okay, well, like I don't get a choice anymore or they lost their limb or they lost the pregnancy or whatever it is, right? Like I don't have that choice anymore. If that happens in an abbreviated period of time, that's an emergency. If it's not so abbreviated, that's an emergency. If there's really no rush per se at all, then that is not emergent. Does that make sense? Yep, makes perfect now, sense. And you can tell, I just took two minutes to explain that. And it takes years of experience to look at somebody and understand the difference between emergency and urgency even. Just like understanding like how fast, that's the classic thing. Med student runs into the room, even an intern, even sometimes a resident, right? Somebody who has been a physician for some time and comes in and just misappraises the situation and just says like, I'm really worried about this patient and we really need to go see him right now. It's like, oh yeah, sure, let's go. And then the more experienced physician is like, oh, I'm, that's, I'm not really that worried about it. That's kind of strange and stuff because there's different levels. So it takes years of experience and that's a clinical diagnosis. But an insurance diagnosis, right? The payer diagnosis of what is emergent versus urgent versus non-emergent, entirely different. Yeah, and and that's what's so what seems so tricky, right? Because because as a physician, there might be a disconnect because there might be a disconnect between what a physician would say. This feels like an appropriate thing to show up to the emergency room for, and then that may still get denied. Right here's a prime example. I think uh, you you may or may not remember this. I went to the emergency room mm -hmm. thinking I was having a heart attack, thinking mm -hmm. I was having a cardiac event because I woke up in the middle of the night with chest pain. Never happened before in my life. EKG was normal. The doctor felt like I think you just had really bad heartburn. Mm -hmm. and it never happened. I've never had that specific type of event happen again. But I you know was very concerned in that moment. From a coding standpoint, I'm I'm not sure how that was coded specifically, but obviously heartburn as your as your diagnosis code probably not going to impress the insurance companies. Right, but that's why documentation becomes so important, right, from the physician side. Which is from the physician side is that if a young man such as yourself came in with acute chest pain, okay, I'm not don't notice I'm not talking about urgency. I'm not talking about emergency. I'm just denoting how new is it? It's very acute, hyperacute chest pain, severe chest pain, concerning for what we call myocardial infarction or heart attack or anything like that, or just ischemic heart disease, okay? That's like what we're concerning for. Now, you're a young man, you have no other major health problems, so the odds that you have a heart attack are quite low, and that should affect a doctor's assessment of what tests are needed. And we're gonna talk about this because if you pigeonhole all your doctors who take care of your emergent issues, it's not because really in reality, the people who are taking care of them are often other specialists, but I'll put that aside. But if you pigeonhole all the physicians whose job, who's, you know, they're told, it's your job to differentiate between non-emergent and emergent care. That's literally your job. Your job is nothing else. Your job is not to fix things. Your job is to determine, do I admit this patient? Do I discharge this patient, right? And what kind of treatment if they need it? What kind of tests do I need? to figure that out, right? That's my job. Well, if you put them in charge of that, and if you add some other sticks, right, which are, if you, God help you, if you miss a diagnosis, if you miss Patrick's diagnosis of a possible heart attack, and he dies or he has a event that we're gonna stick you so hard, to be, which is legitimate, you don't wanna miss that. But that stick is so strong that all the patients who come in who probably just have some reflux, right, 
and they, they're, they're not likely to have a heart attack, that's going to affect your care. It's going to affect what you order. It's going to, no matter what, bias, it's going to do it. And then you throw in the carrot, which is, oh, I get paid more if I order Patrick a CT scan and an EKG and a whole bunch of tests and I call a consult to the heart doctor and stuff like that. I get paid more. The hospital makes more. Huh. Okay. Now, I'm not saying anybody really actively thinks about this, but that's how our bias is thinking about it, which is I get really dinged if I miss something and I get paid more if I do more. Why wouldn't I? And third person, which is, and Patrick feels better because he got the care he feels like he needed, a bunch of tests and stuff. Also not understanding the more tests you have, the more things that happen to you, the more chance of error and harm that befall you. When in reality, you've just had reflux. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have gone there. You absolutely yep. should have gone there. Absolutely. That's a 1000% you should have gone there. But you can see how that very specific episode where an emergency department is perfect is in the middle of the night. You can't go to your PCP. It's in the middle of the night. It's very scary. And it could have catastrophic consequences. That is by definition something that you should be evaluated for emergently. But it was non-emergent. And so the doctor would fill that out and would say like, oh, I did this, 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 and it turned out to be this. You'd still be considered emergent care. Up to the insurance company, of course but from the position of like a physician. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what layer upon layer of things where you go, yeah. this, there's a way to do this. If you're trying to be aggressive about emergency and look, we have technology. Maybe you want to launch a 24 seven. There's an ER physician on call that you need to talk to first. That maybe, maybe there's a ton of maybes here. The, the other thing I, that, I, that came to mind when I was thinking about this is that coming off the backs of the avoidable deaths statistic from COVID, right, which is, I forget what the, what the specific metric is, but if you look at, if you look right. at um, additional deaths or, or deaths above average, above normal, that it, there's this huge like, bump during COVID times. And what people um, are estimating is that it's from fear of going to the hospital, fear of going to clinical environments and getting sick. And so you have people- and access and access not to interrupt you and like i will put it on the point of some physicians not every physician ran into oh sure pandemic. sure yeah that's well said Sleep well said so the regardless of the specific yeah, input the output being that fewer patients that are readily accepted or readily able to come into um, a, a place of care the more excess deaths that you have over normal and this does not seem like the policy to help reverse. No, it's poor timing. It's definitely poor timing. Very I mean, that, poor yeah, timing. Definitely poor timing. Yeah. Tone, tone deaf, yeah, yeah to, to the nth degree. But they are not incentivized. Like, they're just not incentivized. Yeah. Right? How much money, I de I, and I would love to, I need to do the reading on this, so I I'm just asking hypothetical situations for which I do not have uh, data for. So it's poor form on my part. But, like, how much money would they save by just cutting that versus the the deductibles they're getting from patients you know what i mean yeah like, yeah like that that's my thought like the people who pay for the service have the leverage and i i really think i mean i think perhaps too simply about macroeconomics, but like i i imagine that you're if you are the primary person who's paying for the service and you're dissatisfied with that service you have leverage if you're the person who's just like 
off to the side again. You're you're in the back seat while dad's like, well, we're going to zoo or zoo or zoo. Where would you like to go? And it's like, it's like, it's like I guess the zoo, I suppose. And so you're not a part of the conversation. This conversation between the daddy and mommy, which was like insurance companies, healthcare systems. And it's just telling healthcare systems, I am not going to pay you billions of dollars for what you say is emergent and it is non-emergent care. That's that's like the long and the short of it. And the healthcare systems are like, how dare you? <laughs> like, how dare you define what is emergent personality, which is legitimate. But there's also... On a vast amount of waste and a vast amount of this is why you're interested in virtual care. This is what you saw working in a primary care clinic, which is like a lot of these issues could be solved by easy access to a doctor you have a relationship with. Doctor you have a relationship with. That's the big thing. Yep. Yeah. Back to advocacy, a huge theme of ours. Oh, yeah. Uh, from season one. Yeah, I'm interested to see if, if United chooses to take another run uh, at this. The, their only commitment was uh, was in delaying the implementation of this, not in scrapping it, not in we've Somebody will. we've repented. Yeah, I'm very interested and to I see. And I think it's this is going to be controversial in my hot takes. They should. They should. Not from the perspective of how they're doing it. The messaging, the execution, that's all wrong. But it is absolutely true that people are getting too much care at emergency departments. And the yeah. emergency departments are benefiting from it. And, and it's perverting the whole system. It, is, it really is. So when you see it from the physician standpoint, it just it corrupts so much. A- absolutely right. Like back to, the, back to the thing that isn't controversial. I fully support any insurance company showing that they are advocating for their patients by encouraging and incentivizing and educating their patients on like the most appropriate yes. way to get the care they need. Yes. The I'm most interested in carrots. I'm less interested yes. in sticks. For sure. Especially when it relates to, if you say how many dollars is it worth saving if you cause one additional death because someone's like, my heartburn's probably just, or my, uh, my chest pain's probably heartburn and not a widow maker sure. that that's Absolutely. those are the things that I, I that i think sure that's what everyone thinks of and i think they're exactly right to think about that i think about that too but this is the thing you got to remember that if you stick with what is on the surface which is like how many people are going to be caught out of care when you do not understand how many people are already locked out of care that is the conversation people are not having which is like and why are they locked out of care because they can't afford care Sure. They can't afford insurance. And why can't yeah. they afford insurance? Insurance is too expensive. Why is insurance so expensive? Well, because of many reasons. Sure, right? sure. But this is one of them, which is it, insurance companies are having to pay for more and more stuff that they shouldn't have to pay for. Now, we can argue about what that is, and what, but that's the truth of the matter. They're paying for too much waste. And so if they're paying for too much waste and that's getting more expensive and it's leaving more and more Americans out, that is resulting in more deaths. I see it every day, hmm. every day at the institution I, I teach at which is largely catering to people who have no insurance. And I'm going to tell you right now, I and my partners maybe do everything we possibly can to deliver them the best care. They're not getting equivalent care because they can't get equivalent care. And so those people are dying way younger Hmm. unnecessarily because of the system that's failing them. And then so like, I get it. You want to talk, not you, but the royal you, right? Like everybody wants to talk about like, oh, well, how many people will this lock out of? But what you really need to be is like, what about all the millions of people who are already locked down? Yeah. And you could let them in because you somehow reined in costs. Now, the thing I would push on is that in a, in a pure capitalistic society, politics aside, I'm just saying that insurance companies aren't necessarily motivated to then take that money saved 
and not just pay it to shareholders or keep it for themselves, right? That, that's the problem. You have to do social good. You have to be like, okay, well, we save $40 billion by gutting bad actor emergency departments. And now we're putting that into a program to pay for low cost insurance for all the people locked out. Okay, well, then you got my attention. Then you got me listening because maybe that's worth the bandaid ripping off. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is deep, man. Deep. Obviously, you and I, I steered, steered broad, steered around a lot of the insurance issues because it's just, it's such a dense topic, even for providers. It's, it's yeah. so, but yeah, something that you and I will be keeping our eye on is how these sorts of policies move forward. I think this is a good spot to wrap. Trey, giving you the sure. last word on that. I, I love getting your perspective. I want to encourage everyone, you can always find us at uh, translateyourdoctor.com. Email us at translateyourdoctor at gmail.com. There we go. i got to take a breath because that's such a such a mouthful. Uh, go ahead and rate us. Give us five stars. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And we will be picking this up. We think about 12 episodes. Mm-hmm. We're going to have an interview uh, next week. We've got some uh, really exciting uh, guests, some good return guests coming back to uh, jump into some of these conversations. So, Trey, let's let's get back at it, man. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye.